0: lift this cup of coffee yeah I know said another my cataracts are so bad I can't even see my coffee another one said I couldn't even mark the X at the election time because my hands are so crippled what speak up what I can't hear is another one and then another person said I can't turn my head because the arthritis in my neck is so bad to which others agreed One lady said, my blood pressure pills make me so dizzy, and then another one said, I forgot where I am and where I'm going. (laughs) I guess that's the price we pay for getting old, Winston, old man, as he slowly shook his head. The others nodded in agreement. Well, we need to count our blessings, said a woman cheerfully. Thank the Lord we can still drive. (laughs) we all know that's the Lord sanctifying us on the road so anyways well we learn a lot of things from the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul and as we begin our new semester we're starting in the middle of chapter 19 and we see right from the get-go that Paul was a man who made plans he had vision he followed through and he had had a ministry that wasn't haphazard He had a plan. He mapped out where he was going to spread the gospel throughout the world. Paul also followed up on works he had begun earlier, checking in on the uh, well-being of believers. And dear to his heart, kind of the background of this next missionary journey, is the fact that the believers in Jerusalem were desperately poor, and as you read through the New Testament letters, you see his burden that the Gentile churches take up a collection that he would bring to Jerusalem to help them in their, uh and showing love and sacrifice from the Gentile believers to the church in Jerusalem. So as Paul made his plans, he included a tour going back to Macedonia and Greece in order to collect that financial aid to bring to Jerusalem. And so he had just finished three years in Ephesus, And now he was gonna leave and go the opposite direction of Jerusalem through Macedonia to collect that offering. But Jerusalem was not his main goal. We know his plans um, included his real desire to get to Rome and ultimately to Spain. See that in Romans 15. He believed Jerusalem was where the Lord was leading him with the collection and he had no idea with what was going to be coming next. He knew there would be danger. surely he never imagined he'd end up in Rome as a prisoner with false accusations so Paul sent Timothy and Erastus to go ahead of him to Macedonia while he stayed on a bit longer and he wrote actually to Corinth and he explained to them a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries and that brings us to the riot in the city in Acts 19 so the instigator of the riot. We read about the time about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the, to the craftsmen. So the way was a term of expression to speak about Christians, that's what they were designated as. And the impact of the gospel was really spreading, and many were embracing the message of the gospel. And though it was this man named Demetrius who started this uprising, we all know from scripture, as you study scripture, that it is Satan, or one of his demons, who oppose truth, who are behind the uprisings uh, that happen, and stir up people to bring about confusion, to disrupt the truth going forth. And if you've ever watched news in the past years, months, you have seen, lived out for you, the demonstration of the fury of a crowd that erupts into a mob and into a riot. So it's easy to imagine what happened here in Ephesus. I remind you, Ephesus was the headquarters of Artemis, the worship of the goddess of fertility, her Latin name being Diana. And her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, so it really was a big deal to be a host city to this place, to the shrine. There was a large image of, the, of her in the temple it was a woman with many breasts signifying her fertility. Some believed this, mess- this image actually had fallen from the sky and some, I read, said maybe it was a meteor that fell down and they made it sculpted into this woman. And you can imagine the lucrative business for those making money, smelling, you know, good luck charms, shrines of Artemis to take home with you. archeologists have, terra- have found terracotta shrines of this, of course silver would have been melted down <coughs> for other use as years went on. But the silver shrines uh, were there and they were costly, they were desirable to be sold and apparently there must have been a whole guild of silversmiths making big money in, uh, from the temple on sales. And when you touch someone's money source you can expect aggression mm-hmm. uh, and retaliation. And Pilgrims would come from all over the Roman Empire every spring because there was a big festival in the honor of Artemis and so that was a time of making big money. We go on to read that you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So even though this was a man bitterly opposed to the gospel message, he really did recognize that it was spreading and people were believing its message. Next Demetrius' speech goes beyond the financial loss that he's suggesting uh, that is beyond that because he's concerned about their, t- their town and this temple uh, being regarded as worthless by these men. And were that to happen, then Ephesus would suffer as a city And this was uh, also about civic pride. You think about when a country gets to host the Olympics, there's a lot of pride that we're the ones who host that. And that was really the mentality that we are the guardians of Artemis and we are the host of this great place and this great temple. So now he gets an angry mob that's beyond his silversmiths. So we see the mob mentality. In verse 28, when they heard heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. It only took a few really good spokesmen and manipulators to create this huge reaction and mob. We read in verse 32 that the majority of the people didn't even know for what reason they were even gathered in that theater. There was confusion, anger, people who are suddenly emboldened to do things they would never do alone on their own. Unable to locate Paul, they recognized two of his friends and dragged them into the theater. Of course, Paul wanted to go there, but his friends kept him from doing so. So there's chaos and confusion everywhere. People are being swept up into anger and hysteria. And who knows what the word of mouth, you know, what they're saying, what was being said. So anybody could say anything. Then some poor guy, foolish guy named Alexander gets up. And he's going to attempt to address this mob. And the Jewish community uh, didn't want to be associated with the racial attacks on them. They were almost anti-Semitic. And they were probably trying to distance themselves from Paul and this sect called The Way. But of course everyone started shouting at him to be quiet and that's when they started screaming for two hours straight, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They didn't like Jews or this sect called The Way because they said there is an invisible God and there is no God made with hands. And they rejected idolatry, so that was the big problem. But the mob is dispersed. There's this big iron authority called Rome that put the fear of uh, for everybody. This town clerk steps up, he's an elected official, and he realized he better get this situation under control before war- Rome gets wind of it. If the Romans investigated this uproar, they as a city could lose their particular freedoms and privileges uh, in their investigation. So he rebukes the men, who started it? Reminding them, our city is the guardian of the great temple, and the things which, uh, f- and the image that fell down from heaven. If he could have held up a sign, he would have just said, "You know what? Keep calm and silversmith on." That's what <laughs> But he also rebuked the men uh, who started the uproar by stating, "You know what? You drag these men in. They're not robbers. Just let it go." You should have gone through the courts and the proper legal channels with your complaint. So this instigation by Satan did not bring about the desired success. The the believers stood true and strong despite the persecution that was going on. It's interesting to think that this city and its temple and its silversmiths guild, they're all long gone. You can go to Ephesus today, you can see the ruins of this theater which um, can hold up to 25,000 at the time. And mostly there is either archeologists or believers who love the New Testament who come to see the ruins. That's, that's who's there now. But Paul and the messages that he has given into the scripture and, and the gospel, thousands of years later are being read and loved And Demetrius and Artemis are long gone off the scene. One can't help but be impressed with Paul's courage because as chapter 20 opens up, he's not running out of town. He's gathering the believers again to give them a word of encouragement. And that brings us to Paul's third missionary journey. And he starts off by heading towards Macedonia. At Troas, he had planned to meet up with Titus, according to 2 Corinthians 2, but that didn't happen. How did anybody meet up with anybody back then? I mean, there's no, what's the communication? I don't know, but they didn't meet up till later in Macedonia, and after the reunion with Titus, Paul had news from the church at Corinth, and he then wrote his second letter to the church at Corinth while in Macedonia. Then he goes on to Achaia, which is a part of Greece. It is Greece. After Paul visited the churches in Macedonia, which would have been Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, he arrives in Greece. And it was here that he spent three months, most of which was with the church at Corinth. And this is where he wrote the letter to the Romans, and we read that Gaius was his host in Romans 16, 23. So as Paul gets ready to catch a ship for Syria, he learns that there's a murder plot to kill him while he goes off to sea. So he changes his route to go by way of land through Macedonia, and then we read of a whole list of Paul's companions that are given, men from all over the Roman Empire represented who had come to faith in the one true God. So we notice this group of men went on ahead to Troas, while Luke then again rejoins Paul, having traveled together from Philippi to Troas, and they stayed there for seven days because now Luke, the author of Acts, starts saying, we, so he is back traveling with Paul. That brings us to Troas. Paul had such a great love for the believers in all the churches that he visited. And we read in verse seven of chapter 20, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Well, we learn from this what believers that they met on the first day of the week instead of the Sabbath day, as the Jewish people did. Most think that's because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Their worship together included the Lord's Supper and we read in verse 11 that they did share a common meal together as well and obviously teaching was the priority. As this was their last opportunity to be with Paul, Paul is speaking with them, he's teaching them, they have a lot of questions and there's a lot of long discussion and answers going on to Paul's questions and apparently Uh, This went on and on till midnight. And Paul's so concerned about their spiritual growth and understanding of truth. So he just keeps on talking. He was planning to leave in the morning. He certainly could have used a good night's sleep. But we read he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, even though Paul could have used a good night's sleep, as I said, he made himself available. I mean, hours and hours and hours. And we see this meeting ended up going all night long. Now, all of us have had that horrible experience when you are overcome with fatigue. You know, you're entering this where you want to, no one to see that you're closing your eyes for just a few moments so you can survive. (laughs) I mean, you did this in college, high school. (laughs) Many people do this in church every Sunday. (laughs) We all know that to be true, it's a bad feeling. Anyways, you can imagine. It's interesting that Luke adds in verse eight that there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. So you have a lot of people gathered together, it's midnight, and you have fumes from oil lamps as well. So now you have a young man named Eutychus, and in the Greek, the idea is he's between seven and 14. So he's a young boy, he's probably dying, so tired. Fumes, and so he goes to the window just to get some air, maybe that'll help him stay awake. Mom and dad are no doubt engrossed in the discussion going on. And he's sitting on the windowsill there and then he overcome with sleep. And he falls out, and as you know, he's dead. Dr. Luke, he's a doctor here, must have run down immediately. He's dead. He broke his neck or whatever. Can you imagine the group at that moment? Everybody's running down there. No doubt the parents or a parent runs down and there's their son Eutychus dead. We talk about Uh, breaking up a meeting and shock for everybody there as they're gathered, poor Eutychus. But this terrible tragedy is very brief as Paul goes down. And reminiscent of Elijah and Elisha, he holds the boy, hugs the boy, and says his life is in him. Verse 10, do not be troubled for his life is in him. No doubt, you know, the weeping and and the cries of grief had already begun and... And wait a minute, (laughs) well, Eutychus kisses up. He's good to go. So everybody goes back upstairs. I think it must have been our true adrenaline rush to get this group back alert. And awake, they go upstairs, let's do the Lord's Supper now, (laughs) and um, enjoy a meal together. And that's what they did. And then the teaching went on the whole night long. Paul continued till daybreak. I see two amazing things here. From this story in Scripture first of all the incredible appetite of these believers to know and understand the Word of God even if it meant you're going to go to work on no sleep and then the availability and the willingness of the Apostle Paul to teach them all night long even though it cost him night's rest what an appetite and what a willingness to serve these two things just stand out and at daybreak Paul has to leave luke says the others all got on a boat and sailed to their next destination but paul walked 20 miles to the next destination so up all night teaching all night walking 20 miles most likely so he'd have that many more hours to talk to these young men he was had a heart for and use that time in that way instead of getting on a boat he had such a heart and concern for fellow believers. What about you and me? I I suspect we don't want to give up an hour of sleep to hear the word or to minister to someone who needs to hear the word, let alone stay up and then walk 20 miles in order to continue encouraging people. I remind you that Paul wasn't 18, but time of ministry to these particular people had run out and Paul was making the most of his time with them. So we see in verses 15 and 16, Paul met up with his companions and then they set sail again. And eventually they arrived at Miletus, which is 30 miles from Ephesus. Remember Paul had just left Ephesus, the riot, three years he was there. So he's come back by that way and he, he he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. So rather than going to Ephesus, he sends word to the elders up there to come 30 miles and meet him. Apparently his boat ship had a layover, maybe they're loading, unloading cargo. You know, it would have been tempting to take a little respite here for three days. But no, he sends for the elders from Ephesus and they all come to have this last chance to be together and for him to teach them. I suspect most everybody's gone through the excruciating pain of saying goodbye to somebody that you love very much and sometimes it's like you don't even know if you will see them again in this life. And that's the scene that we're looking at here as we look at verses 17 through 38. It's Paul's farewell to these men he loves so much. And we'll just move quickly through this. Paul remembers, first of all, their past. I remind you that Paul had spent three years nurturing and teaching these men, preparing them to be leaders and elders. Men had grown spiritually, some had become elders, elder, pastor, shepherd, bishop, all the same office, different aspects of the, of the work that they do. And he said, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house you read the book of Ephesians and you know he didn't shrink from sharing anything with them no matter how hard these Ephesians elders had firsthand knowledge of Paul and his ministry Paul knew the church had danger from enemies that would be coming in and try to destroy the church with error so he reminds them that he never served them with an attitude of a people pleaser now his primary goal when he came there was to serve the Lord and was to be a bondservant of the Lord. And he did his service for the Lord with humility and tears. When you don't see humility, you don't see a right person in ministry. Paul grieved over the lost souls. He had tears over struggling Christians who who were defeated by sin. Then there was the burden of false teachers who were rising up from churches. Galatia already had it. Corinth already had it going on. This was the constant internal suffering that Paul dealt with and broke his heart as well as the outside uh, plots to kill him by Jewish leaders who thought they had put an end to this Jesus thing and it was still going on. Paul suffered much for the sake of his savior but he never stopped declaring the truth. He spent those years equipping these men so they could turn around and equip the believers in Ephesians. That's what Philippians 4.12 tells us leaders are to be doing. And the only way people are, e- are equipped is through the continual teaching of the scripture. Paul held nothing back. He taught every doctrine, no matter how hard it might be, uh, to the group of people there. He exhorted them, he admonished believers, and he taught the elders to do the same thing. This is God's plan for leadership for his blood-bought church, the body of Christ. Paul did this publicly, he did it privately from house to house, he says. And obviously this included sharing the gospel with Jews, with Greeks, so that they would come to hear the truth. And what is the truth? That everyone born, everyone in this room is born a sinful sinner, separated from God. Whether you know it or not, maybe you think you've always loved God. Well, that's nice, but your behavior begs to differ. And our selfishness, our rebellion, our doing our own way, is all just our sticking our hand in the face of God. We're all wicked sinners, and we're separated from him, whether we realize it or not, because he is perfectly holy. And so there is a chasm between us and him, and there is no way to, to get us to him unless he intervenes, and that's what he did when he came in the person of his own son to die on the cross and take the wrath of God. God has to punish sin. I mean, he can't look the other way and say, that's okay like a lot of parents do. That's not how it is when you're holy God. And so he poured out his wrath for sin on his son. And those who trust his son, then can have their sins forgiven. And the righteousness of Christ is put on our account and our sin is washed away. That's the whole purpose. That's why he came. And that's what Paul was sharing everywhere he went in the Roman Empire. Well then Paul speaks of the future. He says he knew he would not see them again. You know what? Nothing stays the same, does it, ladies? He would not make it back to their church. He felt it absolutely necessary to fulfill his ministry and bring this offering that the Gentile believers had collected to Jerusalem. Uh, He had already missed uh, the Passover. It was 50 days from Passover to Pentecost, and much of that time was already gone, so he was in a rush to get there and he knew danger awaited him when he got there but he said but I do not consider my life as of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God that is the gospel the grace of God grace means unmerited favor this is the grace of God we deserve no forgiveness we deserve judgment but in mercy In an undeserved favor, he forgives sinners who humbly come to him, turn from their sin, and call upon him to save them. This is God's unmerited favor, his grace. He forgives us as undeserving sinners, and he gives these forgiven sinners his righteousness. So Paul never quit. He never gave up. He said, you know what? I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. The truth is, Everyone who knows Christ is given a ministry of service to do for the Lord. We should have the same goal as Paul to finish that ministry and to finish it well. Paul finished his ministry well. He wasn't some superhuman, superman, hero, Christian character. He was just like us. Read Romans 7. You know the struggles he had are just like us. But his goal was to reach, to share the gospel, to plant churches. He he kept going and he trusted god when god intervened and oops you're a prisoner instead well he didn't say well how am i supposed to plant churches when i'm in prison well now the whole roman uh praetorian guard heard the gospel and the gospel was spreading in a whole other world and you know what you have a world of people your neighbors your relatives your friends that is the sphere of influence that god wants you to shine the light of his truth on and that's what we need to do and do it well Paul then warns the Ephesian pastors with a heavy heart. And he warns them and and reminds them he proclaimed the gospel to them. He, He had shared the gospel. And similar to the prophet Ezekiel, Paul said, he was innocent of the blood of all men. He did not shrink from declaring the truth and the whole counsel of God. So quickly, he warns them, be on guard for yourselves. You know what that means? Leaders, examine yourselves. You can't lead others if you're not constantly looking at your own spiritual condition your own spiritual life he wrote to Timothy Paul wrote to Timothy if a man cleanses himself from these things he will be a vessel for honor sanctified useful to the master prepared for every good work so godly leaders are men who must examine themselves those who are leaders in every local church are to forsake sin and to make sure their teaching is accurate with scripture. There must be personal holiness for there to be a true spiritual leader. You know what, ladies? There are countless of unqualified men, disqualified men, who are everywhere around the world and in our country in spiritual leadership positions who are proud, who are arrogant, who are worldly, who are self-serving are moral failures. And they shouldn't be there. But they are, and people follow them. That's so sad. And then he says, shepherd the flock. These elders are warned to examine their own lives and then guard the flock as you lead them into the truth of God's word. It's the Holy Spirit who raises up overseers. As I said, they're under shepherds who shepherd the flock. After all, the the church belongs to God, not to man. So leaders are simply stewards who are to be faithful. Christ is the one who purchased every believer with his own blood elders shepherds pastors they are in the role of shepherding believers in every local church they are to feed the sheep and equip them to live a godly life from learning the word of god and they are to stand firm in that truth then he says guard the flock i know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you and will and not sparing the flock and from among your very own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. There are spiritual predators everywhere, and they teach error. They've invaded the church at Corinth and Galatia, they have invaded America, and the world as well. Our Christian culture is living proof of this. Everything that is truth, Satan has a counter-truth. Satan loves to take truth and mix some error with it, so that people hear truth and assume that the error is okay because they heard some truth coming out of this teacher. Whether it's Christian uh, pulpits from the TV, radio, mass media, books, whatever, uh, it is everywhere that pulpits are saying things that are not in alignment with scripture, or taking scripture out of context, misrepresenting the truth, they do it with a smile on their face. They say, "I love Jesus. I love the Bible. This is what the book says," and they're teaching error. Ladies, that this is the enemy of our soul. He appears as an angel of light. You think he's coming looking disgusting? No, he's beautiful. He has his servants who work for him, and they're probably unaware who they're really serving, and they're pro- proclaiming error with wonderful smiles and kind hearts, and yet. They are like wolves in sheep's clothing, and Paul is warning these elders, beware, protect the flock. People follow. Oh, that he loves Jesus. Next he warns them, be on the alert. The faithful shepherd or pastor must keep warning the flock, just like Paul had done for three years, admonishing them with tears. He gave these believers counsel about false teachers, and the leaders in any local church are to be shepherds who protect the flock. Ladies, that's why you need to be in a local church that teaches the Bible accurately. This is God's umbrella, his way to protect you from error and from being messed up in your Christian life. A spiritual leader must also study God's word and pray according to verse 32 and then we move on. The spiritual leader must be free from the love of money and of self. Paul says, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or clothes. So Paul reminds them, he worked hard. Paul never wanted to be confused with a charlatan, and even though he could have said, will you support me in my work here in Ephesus, he worked hard as a tent maker. Not only that, he worked hard so no one had to support him, and he also shared that money that he made with those in need and set that example to them. He quotes a statement from Jesus saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Interesting, the only statement of Jesus not found in the Gospels, that is found here in this other portion of scripture. So Jesus said a lot of things that aren't in the, in the gospel accounts, but this one has been verified that he said. It is, and you know what? If you've ever met a need, whether it's a meal or something gigantic, you know it is more blessed to give than to receive. So with all this said, Paul drops to his knees. Everyone is praying, they're hugging, they're weeping, they're heartbroken, they're not gonna see each other again. Paul has poured everything from his life into these men. It's time to get on the ship. His final exhortation is complete. He's clarified their responsibility as church leaders back in Ephesus. And like Paul, we each have a course to finish. If you know Christ, He has given you a mandate in the the life that you live, the people that you rub shoulders with. But the most important thing I want to ask you is do you know Christ? You can't begin this Christian journey and walk until you've humbled yourself. And seeing your need for forgiveness. You have offended a holy God. There's only one right way to be right with God. doesn't matter if you were baptized or you're a member of a church. Or you've done all these things on a checklist. That won't, that's not perfection. There isn't any perfection except in the work of Jesus on the cross. And I pray if any of you here don't know him. That you will call upon him today to save you. And for those of you who know him. Ladies. Are you busy about doing the work he has given you? Even tirelessly? Are you in a church that's biblically has qualified leaders that protect you by faithfully proclaiming God's word to you? This is God's plan for his sheep. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for letting us see the progress of the church as it was born in Jerusalem and is now spreading out. And here all these thousands of years later, we're reading about what you the work you did through men and women who are just like us. Lord, I pray in our time, our generation, our little window to live, that we would shine as lights in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.